0: Scripture says, "Give honor to whom honor is due." and we honor Dr. King and everyone who was part of the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century and a movement that continues. It is up to every generation to continue the work that was done by previous generations uh, to build on what was, in essence, the teachings of Jesus: to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you." And Dr. King and the heroes of that generation laid a foundation on which we continue to build, as we strive to be as a church, a diverse community of good friends who are together doing good works and sharing the good news of Jesus with the world. A good news that brings reconciliation, not only people to God, but also people to one another. Glad that you're here. Uh, I want to welcome those who are online as well. We're still kind of early in the year, and I'm so excited, friends, for what God has in store for us in 2022. We believe, and we have reason to believe that this is going to be a monumental year in the life of our church. There are dreams that we've been dreaming since 2018 and earlier uh, that are starting to take shape, starting to come into picture. And we believe that God is opening doors for us of opportunity that are unprecedented and that this is going to be our best year yet. I believe that and we truly, as a team, believe that is the case. And yet there is a question that I want to ask even before we get into those big opportunities and the big dreams. And the question is, when we as a church step into what God has prepared us for, what kind of a people will we be? What will be the state of our souls, our relationships, our family lives? Because it's not enough just to go and take the mountains and take the next hill and, and grow and prosper. And we hope and believe for all of that as a church. We also want to be a church made up of individuals and families that manifest the presence of God in their neighborhoods and their communities in their workplaces, that where the people of Horizon West show up individually, the kingdom of God touches earth. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be in a series that we're calling First Things First. And this is going to be about the spiritual practices, the the things that we do in relationship with God that change us from the inside out so that we can be a changing force in the world around us. Pastor Matt Chandler at the Village Church said, it's like this, when you're buttoning up your shirt, if you get the first button wrong, the rest are going to be wrong, (laughs) right? Right? And we don't want to skip too quickly past that. We want to recognize that more than anything, when God has called us into fellowship with himself, when God saved us and began the work of transforming us, that that was something that he wanted to do in our souls. And there is a participation with God, a cooperation, if you will, in that action. John chapter 10 is where we're going to be. John 10, and we're going to start here, but not come back to it very frequently. But what I believe is happening in John chapter 10 is Jesus is giving us an idea of the kind of relationship that he wants to have with us. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 say this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber but the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Two things that Jesus says that he does in the role of shepherd, he calls and he leads. And two things that we do as the sheep we hear and we follow. So the relationship of living as a Christian, the, 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 the living out our faith in the world is a process of hearing the voice of Jesus and responding to his good leadership in our lives. Okay. So the question becomes, how do we remain responsive to the good leadership of Jesus? It's easier to do that in rooms of dozens or hundreds on a Sunday morning where there's worship music playing and, and there's somebody preaching the word and, and we're surrounded by Christians. But how do we remain responsive to the good leadership of Jesus in our lives on Tuesday morning and on Thursday evening when we're having a hard time getting the kids to bed? Or on the weekend when life is, is going in different directions? Like how do we remain responsive to the good Shepherd? Growing up in central Florida, I believed that when somebody talked about skiing, they were referring to a lake and a boat and skis. (laughs) And I came to learn that skiing for most people means something very different. It means getting on a mountain covered in snow and skiing down the mountainside. Not water skiing, but snow skiing. And so as probably a teenager, I had my first experience of snow skiing. And after one or two runs down the bunny slope, I was like, I've got this. And I went to, not a black diamond, but I don't know, a purple diamond. I don't know what they're called, but something that was a little south of that. And I missed a really, really important lesson about skiing. I missed a lot of things. But one of the things I missed was that when you're skiing down a mountain, the goal is to go kind of from side to side, right? You guys, you guys probably know this. I did not. And so in my you know, coat that was probably too big for me because I borrowed it from my brother. I strapped on my skis and I went flying down a mountainside, for like start to finish, straight down. And as I got near the bottom, I realized this isn't going to end well. I don't know how to stop and I'm going like 40 miles an hour. And so I just kind of sat down and pivoted, and a cloud of snow just shot like 30 feet in the air. And that was my experience skiing. And you know what I did when I got done? With that run, I got on a ski slope, I went to the top and I just kept doing that, right? And I missed the lesson that that the the side-to-side motion is how you ski. I also probably did not have the right attire or equipment or enough experience, but this was my first experience with skiing. And the truth is, when you desire to do something that you currently don't have the ability to do, there are steps you have to take to get there. The same could be said of learning to cook or learning a new language or learning to play a new instrument. And the same can be said of the spiritual life. For a lot of us, we caught the idea somewhere along the way that the spiritual life just kind of happens. Like we get saved and then we show up at church and we just kind of start to become like Jesus. But the early church and church fathers did not believe that. They believed there was this cooperative uh, actions that we take along with the Holy Spirit that lead us to become more like Jesus. They called these spiritual disciplines. If you don't know what that term means, it just simply means practices that promote spiritual growth. Growth. These are, in some cases, thousands of years old. We see some of the spiritual disciplines in the book of Genesis. And certainly by the time the early church is birthed and the early church fathers are coming around, they're learning to practice certain things that help them to walk with Jesus, to hear his voice, and to follow him better. I was introduced by more modern writers to the idea of spiritual disciplines. I want to give you two. One is Dallas Willard. He wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines in the mid-20th century, and just behind him, another, Richard Foster, who became somewhat of a literary mentor to me for the last 25 years, and Richard Foster wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline, and both of these guys grapple with what does it look like to implement spiritual disciplines that in some cases are thousands of years old in an age of air travel and the internet. Like, how do we do that now? I'm gonna use a different term than disciplines because it's becoming more popular to speak of these as spiritual practices. The reason I do that is twofold. One, discipline can lead us in the wrong direction. Like we, we get the wrong idea, we think punishment. Uh, I, I remember seeing the book, Celebration of Discipline on my mom's bookshelf and I went, well this explains a lot about my childhood. <laughs> my parents enjoy spanking me, I don't get it. what's wrong with these people, right? because I misunderstood what discipline was referring to, but it's referring to practices, right? Things that we do. And the, and the other reason I use that simply is because that word practice is relatable, right? You practice your instrument, you practice the sport, you practice a new language. So spiritual practices that promote spiritual growth. And while there is not an exhaustive list or comprehensive list of them, meaning some spiritual writers will include ones that others don't, And you might even have spiritual practices that no one has talked about or written about. But I want to give you an idea of what the spiritual practices are. And I'm going to use Dallas Willard's list. He puts them into two categories in the spirit of the disciplines. There are practices of abstinence. This means things that we choose not to do to help promote spiritual growth. He lists solitude, silence, fasting, Sabbath, secrecy, and submission. The other category is is practices of engagement, things that we do to help encourage spiritual growth. He lists Bible reading, worship, prayer, soul friendship or fellowship, personal reflection or meditation, and service. And so each of these practices can be things that help us to grow in our spiritual life. Now let me say something really important right at the outset. Spiritual practices are not things that we do to impress God or other people. And they are not things we do to earn God's favor. See, some of us grew up in a tradition or in a church culture where it was like, man, did you read your Bible today? Because if you did, God's happy with you. (laughs) And if you didn't, and if you've gone a couple days or weeks, man, God is really angry at you. And I'm here to tell you that God's posture toward you through Jesus and through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, he's for you. And you're good with God. He's happy to see you. He loves you. There is nothing but graciousness and kindness flowing from him into your life. So it's not about going, okay, if I do these things, God's going to love me more. No, 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 no. You are infinitely and fully loved and fully forgiven through the blood of Jesus on the cross. But what spiritual practices can do, much like a flower that cannot produce sunlight or make the rain fall, what a flower can do is remain rooted. And remain in a position so that when the sun shines and when the rain falls, it soaks it up and it grows naturally. In fact, a lot of the spiritual writers emphasize the passive nature of the spiritual practices. It's less about doing something to help God make us better. It's more about getting out of our own way so that the natural process of sanctification, becoming like Jesus, can happen in our lives. By the way, this is exactly what Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 15. He he has just introduced them to the Holy Spirit, and so that they don't get it misunderstood what's happening here, he says in verse 4 and 5 of John chapter 15, he says, Remain in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So as we talk about the spiritual practices, I want you to know that apart from Jesus, apart from being rooted in him and through the work of the Holy Spirit, there is no, there is no benefit to doing these things other than the fact that it kind of pulls us out of the way and lets God, the vine, produce in us what only he can produce. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to start with the first of four Uh, spiritual practices and we're going to start with prayer for a couple of reasons one because I believe prayer is encounter with God and that's what it's all about this is kind of like the the the, the primary practice that God has given us some have said it's like oxygen for our souls prayer but prayer also I include first because prayer includes several other spiritual practices that you'll see uh, throughout the message And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we overcome four obstacles to prayer because here's what I believe. Most of you and maybe all of you would say, like I do, I wish I was better at praying or I wish I prayed more. And yet we find a resistance and and we find obstacles that come in to where we go, yeah, I'm just not as good at praying as I want to be. We're going to look at those obstacles. And then what I want to do is give you a new vision for what prayer even is. Because if all you do is click off the you know, check, 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 those are the four points. No, 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 I want you to understand a new way of thinking about what prayer is and what God's desire is for us in prayer. And then we're going to close with a very brief, two, maybe three minutes time at the end of the service where we can pray. There will be some soft music playing, but that's going to be an invitation for you to just meet face-to-face with God, to speak, and to hear from him as well. So again, lots of, lots of types of prayer in the next 20 minutes. I'm gonna not have anywhere near the amount of time to treat all the different types of prayer. What we're gonna be talking about today is, pra- is prayer as practicing the presence of God. Okay, so practicing the presence of God. Not prayer as my list of requests for God. Not prayer as, God, I ran a red light, make sure those vehicles don't hit me. Like, those are all prayers and they're all important But I want to look at prayer from the standpoint of when we come into God's presence and we just rest with him. And that's what we'll talk about. So, four obstacles. Number one, and this is a pseudo-obstacle. I'm going to give you four real ones after this. Obstacle number one is time. I believe this is the most common excuse and the least common actual reason that people don't pray. You go, I'm just busy. I I just don't have the time to pray. There's too much else going on. The truth is, time is the only resource that we all have in equal measure. No one has more, no one has less. Not only that, but let me take you back to March and April of 2020. The world was shutting down. Many of us said, well, now I have time to do the things that I'd never had time to do before. And about three weeks in, you know what I learned about myself? Time wasn't the problem, (laughs) The house was still messy, I still hadn't learned a new language, I still hadn't started learning to cook, like I had all the time in the world for like four weeks and I found that nothing was really changing because time isn't the issue. You make time for the things that matter. In fact, I found a survey this week, they they, uh, polled thousands of of people all across generational and ethnic uh, spectrums in America and they asked the question, how much time a day do you spend on your cell phone? you should probably also know people always answer less than it really is. Even if they're not trying to, you just cannot fathom how much time you spend on your cell phone. So they found in asking the question, how much time a day do you spend on your cell phone? that The uh, the 57%, so more than half, more than the average, 57% of people reported that they spent five hours or more on their cell phone. Could be talking, texting, apps, games, you know, whatever it is. That was the, at the time, five hours or more, 57% of people, okay? Now, if you have five hours in your day to do something like be on your cell phone, could it be that time is not actually your problem? John Piper 10 years ago said this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that our prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. That stung deeply, it stings still, and I should probably add, I'm not hoping to guilt you or add any sense of obligation to your life, but I'd like us to take an honest look at the mirror and go, okay, some of my excuses aren't, aren't real and valid, right? And, and this is one. One exception. One exception. And there may be more, but one that I believe is an exception. Some of you that are parenting very young children, babies and toddlers, you go, Chris, I, I actually don't have time like in 30 minute chunks or hour chunks to get alone and to like that that could be some of the spiritual writers that write about prayer have actually said that hey time out give yourself grace if you're in that season most of us are not in that season most of us make excuses because of our work or because of a hobby or something that we're doing and the truth is we could do less of it and give more time to the Lord in prayer so we've overcome the first obstacle by realizing that it's Actually, not an obstacle for most of us. And now we're going to move on to four actual obstacles or challenges to having a prayer life. And then I want to give us a spiritual practice that can come behind that and help us and aid us to overcome the obstacle. John chapter 10, the passage that I read earlier where Jesus talks about being our good shepherd, our good leader. He says, The thief has come only to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And so these four obstacles are ways that I believe that our adversary, our enemy, Satan, is introducing us to so much that distracts us and takes us away from the the Lord. And the life to the fullest is going to be a process of implementing these spiritual practices that come behind. So obstacle number one is people. Now I should probably say this, we love people at Horizon West Church. We love serving people. We love being with people. We love gathering people on Sundays. We love gathering people into groups throughout the week. And we have, I think, 11 now. We're looking to launch five to seven more groups next month. If you're not part of one, we want you to be in a group. We think it is good to do life with people. But here's the challenge. If we are not careful, what we disguise as love for people can become poisoned to being a need to be around people. No longer a love for them, to give to them, to bless them, to serve them, but a need for them to be around because when people are around, I'm affirmed. And when people are around, they make me laugh. And when people are around, I'm not having to focus on the dark parts of my own soul. And so I use people for my own ends. And there are some, and maybe even among us who, man, they seem like people persons, right? Like they're extroverts. Man, that person loves people. But in some cases, no, that person needs people. Jesus showed us a way to do it differently. Jesus did not need anyone. And yet Jesus loved people better than anyone. But you know what scripture says? The Bible says that in spite of Jesus's God-sized mission of bringing heaven to earth and dying for the sins of the entire world, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. See, because Jesus understood that if we're not careful, people who we are to love and do life with and have in abundance in our lives can become a barrier or an obstacle to our meeting with God. We try to get from them what we can only get from him. And so the spiritual practice that has been throughout the ages and into today is the practice of solitude. I might define solitude as getting alone for the purpose of connecting with God so that I can then go out and love and serve others better. So I I withdraw like Jesus. I go into a lonely place, a quiet place. I I get away from the crowds and away from people to connect with God. This is challenging for two reasons. One, some of us have that kind of people addiction that I refer to. Like we we, we can't be anywhere by ourselves. We're gonna always need, I had a, a friend in college that he worked a job that was an overnight shift and every night he called a different buddy to come and hang out with him. I don't know, he's like the most influential person that I know because we were working for free so that he didn't have to be alone. And he's a great dude. He's actually a pastor now, but my point is sometimes people are what we're medicating with, right? kind of what numbs us out from having to deal with ourselves solitude is the solution to that and I don't mean by solitude isolation so let me make one more further kind of distinction to isolate is to withdraw from people so that I can do what I want to do so that I can feed the dark parts of my own soul so that I can explore all the, the fleshly desires that I have without any accountability. Isolation is toxic and it is fatal to the Christian experience. And you don't have to be doing dark and sinful things in isolation. The moment that you withdraw from Christian community, uh, the, mo- the moment you push people out of your life or in some cases you just binge on like day after day after day of just watching Netflix or just doing whatever with no people around you, you're succumbing to the trap of isolation. Isolation. What I've noticed in my own life is that when I don't have healthy rhythms of solitude, time alone with God, my flesh starts to crave isolation. Time alone without God. See how that works? So solitude actually, rather than making it cause, cause me to be less about people, solitude helps me to be filled so that when I'm present with people, I can love them well and enjoy the experience. I would encourage you to find a place of solitude and and maybe even let your spouse or your roommates your your children know hey when i'm here i would like to be left alone now you don't get to hang out there all day not giving you permission for that i'm just saying maybe 5 minutes 10 minutes 20 minutes jesus had a place of solitude it was called the mount of olives and that's often where he would go to get away from the crowds i don't live near a mountain and i don't eat olives and so i have the back porch that's where i go and in the mornings, many mornings, I sit and the sun's just kind of coming up, often have a cup of coffee, I sit on the couch, and my family knows, and Nikki is doing it as well, and either of us are there, like that's our solitude place, that's a place we're there to meet with God. I'm going to encourage you to do the same. Let me go to obstacle number two to prayer, not just people, but obstacle number two, noise. Richard Foster said this, speaking of both people and crowds and noise and all these ideas. He said, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged with muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. It doesn't have to be sinful. If the enemy can distract us with crowds and hurry and noise, we will no longer be able to hear the good shepherd who's calling us and no longer be able to follow the The good leader who's leading us. Muchness and manyness. Anybody relate with that? It's like, man, just just noise everywhere. Can't almost go anywhere and not be inundated by sound. And so there's a spiritual practice that was introduced long ago. It's the practice of silence. This is actually, perhaps, along with prayer, one of the most important practices. In fact, many of the uh, early century monastics would take what was called a vow of silence because they understood something. Uh, they understood that connection with God thrives in silence. There has to be times of quiet. In my own life, I've found that when there is silence, I break the silence by talking. I don't like quiet. I don't like silence. I have to disrupt that. So we've done this in the past with different groups of people. When I was the college pastor, with a group of guys, we did something called Fight Club. It wasn't physical fighting, it was like spiritual practice kind of stuff. And for one week, the challenge was to not listen to anything in our vehicles as we drove. No podcast, no Spotify, no albums, no radio, like just silence. Anybody ever try to do that? It is so hard. <laughs> and I get like two minutes in, I'm like, I gotta turn something on. I'm not even like what I'm listening to, but sound. I, it's almost like I have an addiction to the noise. So there's silence that we hear, but uh, or or silence in what we hear. There's also practicing silence in what we say or what we speak. Uh, again, this is what the monastics did. My mom helped us do this as children. I was the middle of seven kids, and I remember one day we were all homeschooled, and she said, "Hey, nobody is allowed to talk today." And we're like, "But," and she said, "No, no." I said, "No one's allowed to talk today." And for an entire day, we didn't speak. Now, we knew sign language, so that, that helped, but, um, but we didn't talk. And, and she was helping us learn the discipline of silence. I think she was actually just trying to save her own sanity. But it came through, nonetheless, we learned the lesson that you don't always have to be talking. Did you know the Bible speaks to this? In, in a verse that may catch you off guard and surprise you, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says this. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That's the New Living Translation, but that is the Bible. That's literally the the, the point of what it's saying. We, We don't always need to be talking. We don't always need to have sound ringing in our ears. Sometimes we need to practice silence. Here's a third obstacle to prayer. This one may be the toughest, at least for me. Mental clutter. I've never heard that expression. I've never read that expression in any of the spiritual writers, but I think you'll know what I mean. It's, it's the experience that even when I'm alone, and even when it's quiet, it's not really quiet. In fact, sometimes the volume is the loudest in my own headspace. Because when I get quiet and I get alone, I start thinking about everything that's making me anxious. I start doing finances. Those are the same thing. But nonetheless, I, anxieties, frustrations, resentments, to-dos oh, I, I need to call that person back this afternoon. I, I, I mean, my mind is everywhere. And it is okay, it is okay sometimes to go, I, I need to chase that thought. Like the Lord can bring things to our mind sometimes in prayer that we need to just pause and go do. But more often than not, what we find is we get two or three or five or a few minutes into prayer and our mind is so cluttered, we're like, I'm not even praying, what's the point? I'm not even getting this done. I have a personal vendetta against clutter. Some of you know that. Um, it, it's, it's just like I, I, I cannot live among clutter. It, it does something bad to me. And so, for instance, I can't go to bed at night until the dishes are out of the sink and in the dishwasher, like stuff gets wiped down. I like to have clean spaces, right? It doesn't always work, but that's what I crave and that's what I desire. And yet sometimes the clutter in the house gets to the point where I'm like, I give up. I can't, I can't overcome. Clutter wins. I can't overcome it. Just this past weekend, we're getting back from Tennessee, or, or this week, weekend actually, and you know we're pulling in suitcases and the, the clean laundry and the dirty laundry, and we got the cooler, we got to dump the cooler out with the water, and the, the, the trash from the car, and got to clean the car out, and then you know, the kids are leaving their stuff already. We just got home, like clutter everywhere. And there was a point this weekend I went, I'm just going to sit here. I, I acknowledge, I wave the white flag, clutter has won the weekend. I can't, I can't fight it, you know. And in the same way, sometimes the mental clutter in our minds, we're like, I just can't, I can't do it, I can't fight it. What tools can I have to overcome this? And I want to give you one, a third spiritual practice. It's the practice of meditation. Okay, meditation. The, the Hebrew word for this is haggah, but it's the idea that you, you put into your mind something very specific and you just rest your mind on it. And when your mind, because it has wings, did you know your mind has wings? When your mind starts to fly away, you say, hey, mind, we're coming back to this. The most common thing the Bible calls for meditation on is the Bible itself, Scripture, right? This could be getting out the, uh, the, uh, the, the Bible, getting out a, a passage of Scripture, reading it, just, you know, it, it could be writing it on an index card and then just looking at it and just going, I'm going to fix my mind on this thought. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Lord, I'm going to fix my mind on that verse, Hebrews 11. Or maybe it's a characteristic of God. We go, God, I want to just meditate and think about your holiness. Or I want to think about the cross. I want to think about all that it did for me. I, I want to visualize the cross in my mind and just rest there. Or maybe we think about a word like peace and we meditate on peace coming into our lives, peace coming into our relationships, coming into our fractured world or, or a phrase that we repeat over and over like come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. But we meditate on it. And it's an anchor point so that when our mind, not if, but when our mind flutters away, we have a place to bring it back to If you find that the practice of silence and solitude and meditating on scripture, meditating on the characteristics of God, if you find that even in that there's this persistent inability to connect with God, then I want to bring you to the fourth obstacle and one we've got to talk about and the fourth obstacle is this, sin. The truth is that sin in our lives and especially relational sin has the ability to hinder our prayers. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter 3 verse 7. He said to husbands specifically, but this applies across the board. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Goes go ahead and bring that up, guys. Says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter's saying, Hey guys. Some of you men, in this case, but it applies across the board. men, because of sin in your life, because of the way you're mistreating your wife, the way you're neglecting her or something else, your prayers themselves are hindered. You ever felt like it's just bouncing around the ceiling and that's not always a result of sin? Might be one of these other things or, or some other obstacle. But sometimes if there's a persistent inability to meet with God, you may ask yourself, Lord, is there sin in my life? This was called the prayer of examine or the prayer of examination. God, is there something, uh, uh, David rather said, Lord, search me and see if there's any wicked way in me. So we go, God, is there sin in my life? And if we find that there is a stronghold or what the Bible sometimes calls a foothold, something where the enemy, it's not just like we, we, we were harsh to somebody or we misspoke one time or this is like persistent sin in our life, hindering our prayers, then what we do is we have two practices. We have one, confession, and two, fasting. And these each have a different part in breaking and rooting out sin in our lives. Confession does this. Confession drains the power of the persistent sin in our lives by dragging it into the light, okay? Sin only thrives in darkness. In fact, somebody once said, you're only as sick as your secrets. And when you keep sin hidden, it's gonna thrive in the darkness. When you bring your sin into the light, it dies, Confession. You go, oh yeah, yeah, confession so I can be forgiven, right? Wrong, actually. Because the truth is, the moment you turn to Jesus in faith, you were forgiven. Every past, present, and future sin was covered by the blood of Jesus. You stand in the presence of a God who says, well done, you're good. I am for you, I am with you, you're my child. The problem with sin is that it hurts us. In fact, it has the power to kill us. And God wants us to thrive. God wants us to live the abundant life. And so he says in James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another so that you may be, again, not forgiven, so that you may be healed. There is healing that takes place when we confess our sins to a trusted brother, men, or a, t- a trusted sister, women. And it begins to break that persistent sin pattern. And coming behind that is the, the spiritual practice of fasting. Because sometimes what's producing the sin in our lives, we're just like at the wrong end of the river. We're like, oh, I sinned, I need to confess, sin, confess. But what is producing that is some addiction or some obsession or some lifestyle pattern that keeps producing sin. And the spiritual practice of fasting can get you up the river and break that stronghold in pieces so that you no longer keep doing the same sins over and over and confessing them. In the Bible, fasting is always fasting from food. And the purpose is, again, not to earn points. This is what Jesus rebuked in the Pharisees. He's like, you, you guys try to make this thing look really good. You want everybody to know you're fasting. But fasting is disciplining my body to go, I want that, and I'm saying no to it. We live in an age of wealth in the Western world. And I know we're all at different places, and, and some of that's legitimate, but Most of us have an enormous amount of wealth, if we're being perfectly honest, right, compared to the world. When do we ever have to go, man, I want that, but I can't get it? Most things I want, I have a way to get. And so fasting goes, I want this, and I'm teaching my body to say there's some things we want, and we say no to at the same time. Now again, that's food in the Bible, but that could also be sugar, that could be television, that could be time on your cell phone. But when you give up something, that discipline of abstinence or fasting can produce something in you that says yes to God, the no to the thing in order to say yes to God. All right, so four obstacles, five practices. Let me go here as we get ready to close. I want to give you what may be a new vision for prayer. For some of you, it may not be new. But I feel led that a lot of us, probably like myself, were taught that prayer is transactional. It's like we pull up to the Drive through of heaven, and we go, God, I'm going to give you five minutes and a list of requests, and these are what I want in return. Thank you, God. Go on with my day. Transactions completed. And I would submit to you that prayer, as God would have it be in our lives, is something very, 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 very different. This past week in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, with four of my six siblings, We arrived to a cabin with nine bedrooms. We were all staying in the same, under the same roof. I know for some of you, you go, man, I could never do that with my family, but we made it work, it was good. It was more than good. You know what we did? We had no agenda. We showed up, unpacked in our rooms, put on the slippers, put on the comfy clothes, and we spent five days playing board games, talking about the mom that we lost years ago, talking about how our kids are doing, getting the family updates. Shed some tears, a lot of laughter, and we just enjoyed each other's company. And I want to invite you to understand that when God invites us to prayer, he's inviting us into his heart. He's inviting us into an experience and a practice that, that, that is meant for us to enjoy him and to simply be in his presence without clocks on the wall and without agendas, and, but to come and say, Lord, I just want to be in your presence. Because, you know, when you spend enough time around somebody, have you ever noticed you start to kind of become a little more like them? Some people even start to look like each other after they've been married a while. Have you noticed that? It's crazy, right? And God is inviting us into his heart. If we need to cry, we cry. If we need to talk about what's troubling us, we talk about it. We need to complain about the state of the world. God's there. He's willing to listen. Listen. And we rest in the presence of the good shepherd who loves us. The one who saved us, the one who's called us, the one who's leading us. I want to encourage you. Maybe right now you do that every 20 days for two minutes. That's okay. Try to do it every 10 for five minutes. Just like you would the first time you're skiing and the first time you're trying to become a runner. You do it in little bits at a time. You grow in the practice, grow in the grace of it. And your father, God, will be with you every step of the way. I want to read for you, um, and then we're going to pray together. I want to read for you the opening words of Richard Foster's book, Prayer. Again, if you have not uh, discovered Richard Foster, I would encourage you to, to look him up. But this is from the, the book, Prayer. He says this, God has graciously allowed me to catch a glimpse into his heart, and I want to share with you what I've seen. Today, the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness, and he longs for our presence. And he is inviting you and me to come home, to come home to where we belong, home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. And then he says this, the key to this home, this heart of God, is prayer. And so we're going to end today in prayer. Before we get on on to all the great things of 2022 for our church and for our careers and our families, we're going to pause and say, God, the thing I long for most is to know you, to love you, to be in your presence. God, as we enter a time of prayer, of prayer, a sort of solitude and silence as best we can create it in this room. Lord, would you help us to meditate on who you are? God, there may be some that are going to bring a lot of requests and that's good. And Lord, I pray you'd hear their requests and answer. God, there's some that need to come and just lay down burdens and and grief and, and shed tears. And God, I know that you're ready to receive those tears with open arms and lots of grace. God, there's some of us that are going to fumble around not really knowing what to do or what to say and, and meet us even there, God, in these next few minutes as we pray in Jesus' name.